1: Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com.
0: With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. The only daily Premier League podcast. This is Football Social Daily. Hello, happy New Year. Hope the head's not too bad after last night's New Year's Eve celebrations. Welcome to 2021. We're not quite ready to get started with Football Social Daily yet. The daily Premier League podcast kicks off again tomorrow. We'll be back with that. So today, we thought we'd give you another taste of Football Stories, our new podcast series that launched last year, featuring some brilliant interviews with people from the footballing world that you don't often hear about. If you want to check out the whole series, you can find interviews with Manchester City youth coach Steve Ayer, a former Chelsea youth prospect, and the Arsenal and England physios Gary and Colin Lewin. Really interesting conversations, and today you're going to hear one of those chats with fellow podcaster Kieran Maguire he is the brains and the voice sound mouth behind Price of Football the podcast and the concept that gives football fans a real insight into how money is being spent in the game this was one of my favourite interviews that we did for football stories i found it fascinating particularly some of the murkier stories that kieran came up with so enjoy this and if you like what you hear you can go and find the rest of the football stories series wherever you find your podcasts just search football stories and premier league daily will be back tomorrow
1: derby county recruited a player's mother to become an academy scout and were paying her £700,000 a year. That academy spending doesn't count towards financial fair
0: play. Hello, welcome to Football Stories. I'm Jim Salverson and throughout this series I'm chatting to some of the more interesting people in football that I wanted to hear the stories from. Not necessarily big names, but certainly people who have had big impacts. And the fellow I'm speaking to today is Kieran Maguire. He is the mastermind behind the Brilliant Price of Football podcast that he's done with comedian Kevin Day since mid-2019. Now, Kieran is, as he stresses, not a broadcaster. He's a teacher and a financial expert, but he's also an author as well. And he is very top of the tree when it comes to football accountancy. On this podcast, we're going to talk a little bit about the success of Price of Football, the podcast, and the concept, I guess. But we're also going to delve a little bit deeper into some of the grubbier football finance stories and do a bit of financial myth-busting too. We're also going to chat about some of the big financial stories that have been in the media over the last few years, including Manchester City and their accusations of breaking financial fair play rules. It's all coming up on today's podcast with Kieran Maguire, who is... The Accountants. Hello. Now, you're the man behind Price of Football. You're an author, you're a broadcaster, you're an academic, you're a fan of football and a fan of the numbers behind football. I became aware of you mostly because of the podcast that you do, the Price of Football podcast that you do with Kevin Day. And it makes perfect sense why you do the podcast, because, as I said, you're an academic, you're a fan of numbers. But how did you get involved with Kevin and end up doing it together? because there's nothing less funny than accountancy. (laughs) Well, yes, I do quite a lot of work for BBC Radio
1: and the other media organisations when there's a football finance story. So therefore, I got to know Guy Kilty at Five Live, who's one of their Mm -hmm. business guys. And Guy approached me to say he he was setting up a, a podcast company. And did I fancy doing a podcast? And I said, it won't work because, as you rightly said, Jim, there's nothing duller than accounting <laughs> and, and having to listen to it. And there's nothing visual to go alongside it. Yeah, the thought of just listening to me talk about my spreadsheets—it it even drained the colour from my cheeks. So God knows what <laughs> would happen to uh, any prospective listener. So, so we had a chat, and I said, "Well, why don't we go for something similar to the infinite monkey cage? I.e., you you get an academic and you get somebody who's a professional broadcaster, somebody who who can take the tedium out of it." And I remember Kevin, I'm a Brighton fan. I remember Kevin, despite being a Palace fan, he put on a benefit gig for Brighton in the mid-90s when we were going through big ownership problems. And I've always liked what he'd done on Match of the Day too. So I just, out of the blue, pitched to him on Twitter... And I think he was very, very tolerant, said, yeah, I'll give it a try, fully expecting it to die on its arse within three <laughs> weeks with nobody listening. And then we could just politely pretend that it never had happened. And for whatever reason, it, it seems to have gone in the opposite direction.
0: And, it, and it's grown a wee bit since then. It's an excellent show. And before we get on to more about the facts and figures behind football, which I want to talk to you about, I have to talk to you about the relationship between you and Kevin. Because obviously, as you said, you're a Brighton fan. He's a Crystal Palace fan there's this strange rivalry between the two clubs that I've never quite understood, but I understand is there. Have you managed to get over that early, doors? It's not strange to us. I mean, I I didn't even tell Kevin that
1: I was a Brighton fan because, like him, I was expecting the show to disappear within a month. So it only came out in due course that that I supported the Albion and he supports Palace. As all Brighton and Palace fans know, the rivalry goes back to the FA Cup in, I think it was 75-76, second replay taking place at Stamford Bridge about 20 minutes from the end of the match we get a penalty the scores nil-nil at the time our captain Brian Horton goes up sticks the ball in the back of the net referee Ron Chalice disallows it because a Palace defender had encroached in the penalty box which was the rule retook the penalty it was saved Palace go down the other end they score win the match 1-0 Alan Mullery, our manager, and Terry Venables, the Palace manager, they, they didn't like each other, so Mullery went across to the Palace fans at the end of the match, had to be restrained by police, took the change out of his pockets and threw it at the Palace fans, said, you're not worth that, Palace. And then after, after the match, it was World War Three taking place as the fans decided to uh, do some proper 1970s-style hooliganism. And ever since then, Palace versus Brighton's been World War
0: Three. I never knew that was the beginning of the rivalry. I've always wondered what it what it was, but now it's all cleared up. If anybody can hold a grudge in life, a football fan can. You, know, you talk to Palace
1: fans, they've got Charlton and Millwall pretty close to them, but you know, they'll say, now it's Brighton, we want to
0: beat more than any other team, and for us it's Palace. Very fitting that it all started on a financial basis as well, the rivalry with the change in the pocket. It's a lovely kind of cyclical nature to that. I want to talk to you about finances in football because there does seem a lot more interest in that part of the game now. It's a bit of a modern phenomena I think in certain ways that fans are interested in the numbers and the figures behind the game. Is that the case? Are more people interested in now or is it just that there's more information available?
1: I think it's sort of a by-product of a a 24-hour society, that we've got channels such as TalkSport and we've got Sky as well, and they're looking for different aspects of the game to talk about. And then finance comes within that overall umbrella. But it also allows fans to criticise either the owners of their club or the owners of their rival's clubs, if, if for whatever reason things aren't going to plan so uh, yeah it has expanded having said that i I did put out on twitter recently i found an article in the economist from 1937 which was about football finance it's as if nothing has changed since then rogue owners game living beyond its means all, all the stuff which we talk about was there in the 1930s as well but yeah it does seem to to have expanded there's other people that there's Kieran O'Connor, the Swiss Ramble, who, who, as far as I'm concerned, you know, he, he is the governor. He's he's the man that really started up this interest. And Kieran's got, you know around about 150,000 followers on Twitter. The quality of the work that he puts out is amazing. You've got Nick Harris at Sporting Intelligence and and other people who have decided to sort of lift the carpet when it comes mm-hmm. to the activities of clubs and their owners in in terms of the way they're organised, their finances. As fans, we want to know everything about our club. And, th- and this is just proven to be an additional aspect.
0: Do you get any kickback from the powers that be, the people who are maybe involved with these football clubs on a high level that don't want their finances being... I mean, obviously they're out there if you want to do the investigative work, but to the Commonwealth Garden fan, the only place you're going to find it is if someone like yourself puts it on Twitter. Do you get people objecting to that level of scrutiny? Yes, I've
1: been forwarded messages from uh, let's just say somebody at the highest echelons of one of the football governing bodies uh, which was quite disparaging about myself Mm. i've been on radio shows with people from the football authorities where they've said we're not prepared to let him ask any questions and they've insisted my microphone switched off and and i've been sued by the owner of one club who who objected to what i'd put out but all i put out was what was in the accounts you know i i don't Mm. have an opinion i'm just a numbers guy. I let fans form opinions, but you can only form an opinion if you've got reasonably good data. So it does make you a bit twitchy at times as to wonder, why do people object when I'm just trying to be as transparent as I can be? Because I think you've got a responsibility to educate.
0: Like I said, it seems like fans care more about this stuff now than they did even maybe a decade ago and recently, particularly up in Liverpool. It seems to take great pride in the fact that their net spend is lower than other clubs. We haven't quite got to the stage where you've got fans on the terraces singing we keep our accounts in the black, but I think that's probably somewhere off in the future. How much of an indicator is things like net spend when it comes to the financial performance or financial success of a football club?
1: You should never look at at any one metric in isolation when it comes to finances in my opinion net spend on a 12-month basis is a nonsense because a football team consists of players who've been recruited normally over a you know a significant period of time so in any one 12-month period I think it's very misleading to look at something such as net spend if you look at it over a five-year trailing period and, and calculate it on that basis you, you can then see things in relation to the strategy of the club so, so lots of people 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 have been going on about Chelsea spending money, but Mm. if if you take a look at at Chelsea's finances over the course of of the last half decade, Chelsea have have had bigger sales of players than, than any other club in the Premier League every single season. Even when Liverpool sold Coutinho, Chelsea managed to outdo that with a combination of players that were sold that year. So you have to be a little bit cautious. If people are just using a single financial measure, that means that you can end up having the tail wagging the dog if, if, if clubs know that they're going to be viewed on that and judged on that then there's ways and means around that you've only got to look to see what's happened with Barcelona and Juve mm. when they've been doing some player swaps at unusually high values to realize that uh, you've, you've got to take some of these numbers with a, with a dose of caution
0: there's some great big financial stories that have done the rounds over the last 12 months I want to just talk about a couple of them I'm sure most of them are things you've talked about 100 times before the most prominent of which is where we stand right now facing a second lockdown and a second wave of coronavirus. And there were until today, a day of recording, we're recording this podcast in the middle of September. There were going to be attempts to get fans back into grounds, but that looks like that's been put on hold till 2021. That's just increasing the chat about financial crisis within the game and how lower leagues teams are really going to struggle. I mean, How bad is it for most of us? We look at the Premier League, we see the advertising, we see the kit sponsorship deals, we see the games on television and the television money. So we assume there is no major crisis. But as you filter down, how bad is it getting in the lower leagues?
1: It's very concerning. I mean, I put out numbers in respect of the National League earlier today. 21 teams had lost money in the National League in 2019. So that's before coronavirus and the impact that that would have. Mm. When you take a look at the The losses made by clubs in the championship, those losses were £600 million when they did have crowds attending matches. So you take out the the impact of matchday income and the numbers start to look horrendous. You you are reliant on finding a gem and managing to sell him on or the generosity of owners. But of course, part of the problem for, for owners, especially those in lower league clubs, is that they, they tend to be people from the surrounding district. The reason why that they can subsidize football clubs is because they've got their own businesses which are successful. Well, those businesses might no longer be successful as a result of coronavirus. And the, you know, if, especially if they're working in the hospitality or the tourism or the, the entertainment sector, that then their businesses are going to be taking a hit. And therefore, the ability to sort of cross-subsidise the losses of the football club become far more difficult. So yeah, if, if you look at the numbers, it, it is very concerning. The Premier League has... Has as a bit of a bulwark, is as a bit of a lifesaver in the form of the TV money. But even so, you know Manchester United and Arsenal and, and probably Spurs were due to receive over a hundred million pounds in in gate receipts last season before the pandemic hit. And and you take that out from any business of of the size that we see in respect of football clubs, and all of a sudden the finances start to look a lot grimmer. People are criticising the owners of Liverpool until last week and Manchester United for not spending money. Well. All of a sudden, you've got £100, less, 100 million pounds less money to spend due to COVID and people need to take this
0: on board. Is there a problem with the structure of the game in English football in terms of, I mean, we've got so many more professional leagues than any other country in Europe. Do we just simply not have the finances there to support, well, four professional leagues? We've had four professional leagues for decades. They've always managed to cope in the past. Mm. Um, there's
1: nothing wrong with running a business which doesn't get a lot of money coming in, provided you you set a budget and you make sure that there's not too much money going out. The big issue, as far as football is concerned, is the gaps between divisions. So if you're in the championship, you're, you're, you're going to get TV money of £7 million, but you know if if you strike it lucky at the casino, that's going to go from seven. To one hundred, so therefore you're inclined to gamble a bit too much, mm. uh, and and that's what we see in the championship. With, with clubs uh, spending on average hundred and seven pounds in wages for every one hundred pounds of revenue, and we've got clubs such as Reading for, who are spending twice on wages compared to the amount that they're bringing in through the gates and through TV and sponsorship and so on. And that that's that's no way to run a business. And similarly, we have a gap between League One. And the championship in in league one you'll get about one and a half million pounds of tv money and as i just said that goes up to seven million in the championship so again there's an incentive to gamble and you know the manager goes into the owner and says look you know it's january if we sign this player we can't really afford him but you know we're presently ninth they could get us into the playoffs if we get the playoffs we're going to be in the big money and too few owners use financial common sense and, and also some owners treat the treat the club as, as if it's a trophy asset as if it's if it's a bauble and it and it's not part of the community it doesn't represent the identity of, of the town or city to which the club is attached because they might not have that historic relationship with the town or city themselves and then therefore they don't mind gambling it because yeah, you know, other businesses go bust in all other industries. So what's the problem if the football club goes bust?
0: I mean, there's gambles getting into the Premier League that a lot of clubs take. But I suppose there's gambles that Premier League clubs take themselves in order to move from survival to mid-table to European to potentially challenging for the title. Do you think we'll see a situation, how close have we got to a situation where we might see a Premier League club overstretching itself and potentially going to the wall?
1: I think that's unlikely, and, and the reason why I say that is simply because if you take a look at the owners of most of these clubs, they, they tend to be very wealthy individuals, and, and I don't think that they would want the, the, the kudos, the, the reputational damage of being known as the person who took West Ham, for example, to the wall. Mm. Uh, and Clearly, there, there's there's no love lost between Golden Sullivan and the West Ham fan base, but they have put money into the club, Although they're charging quite high rates of interest on that, so what we have seen this summer is that clubs will cut back on discretionary spending, so that they've got to pay the wages of players. But you look at the number of clubs in the Premier League whose transfer spend has been negligible, and they're using that as a vehicle as to sort of to cut back on expenditure because that they are genuinely worried. We saw. The people in charge of Burnley saying, well, you know, presently we've got 40 million pounds in the bank, but our wage bill is of seven or eight million. That can't last forever. You know, we, we do need football to return. And what we, you do see with some clubs, you know, the, the likes of Palace and Bournemouth and so on and Burnley, is that quite a few clubs in, in the Premier League get 80% or more of their money coming through the TV deals. So provided those are ticking over, I think the clubs will themselves are likely to survive.
0: It's interesting you mention West Ham. I'm a West Ham fan myself, despite being based in Manchester. My club, and I think there's other clubs like it as well, potentially the owners of Manchester United, Mike Ashley in Newcastle gets tarred with the same stick. They're kind of painted as these evil owners running football clubs for their own gains. Do you think that's a kind of fair accusation? Because at the end of the day they're running the clubs as businesses and they're trying to make money from those businesses I guess it's very difficult to justify that as a fan particularly when I'm talking about my club because I don't want my football club to be run as a business that's for profit of the owners I want it to be run as a football club that seeks success at all costs but I guess when you look at it in the cold hard light of day they have every right to run it in a profit making way should they wish
1: I think if, if all 20 clubs in the Premier League were run as businesses, if it was run on broadly the same rule book as the NFL, where it, it's a franchise and, and the aim is, as, an, as a club owner is to make money, then I don't think there would be an issue. What we do have, of course, in the Premier League is that we've got a mix of ownership models. We have the likes of Manchester United with the Glazers. I, mean, I don't actually think Mike Ashley is there to make money. I just don't think he doesn't want to lose money. And I think there's a slight <laughs> difference. You know, he, he has lent hundred and ten million pounds interest free to the club, but certainly as far as the investment in the in the playing market is concerned, that has been very modest and he's a difficult guy to warm to. Similarly, with West Ham, if you actually take a look at West Ham's finances, the West Ham average wage per week went up from 48,000 to 61,000, you know, £13,000 a week pay rise for the playing squad in 2019. So Golden Sullivan, they have you know, taken their, their foot off the handbrake. They, they have allowed money to be spent. There's, there's two issues. There's quantity and quality of spend. Mm. You, you look at the recruitment at, at Newcastle. You look at the recruitment at West Ham. You look at the recruitment of, at Manchester United and you go, well, it, it's not been great. The Glazers do well out of Manchester United. They take their dividends out each year. The chances are they get salaries as well. It's difficult to work out what's happening at the club. But they have backed the manager. They've spent £1,200 million on new players since Sir Alex retired. They've just bought the wrong players at the wrong prices. And then you contrast that with, well, you've got Abramovich at Chelsea. You've got Sheikh Mansour and the City Football Group at the Etihad. And their approach is, well, we just want to win trophies. It's very difficult to have that contrast within an individual sport, within that individual division, without bad feeling arising because... We all want a sugar daddy. Fans say to me, oh, we we just want a good investor. No, you don't. You want somebody that will write out blank (laughs) checks to entertain you because you feel that they've got a responsibility to do so. And and to a large extent, that's what Mansour and uh, Bramovich have done.
0: The big story up at Manchester City for the last 12 months has obviously been FFP, the charges laid against them that were then upheld or overturned by the Court of Arbitration for Sport, I should say. There seems to be two schools of thought on how City handled this one. And it kind of seems to depend largely on whether you want to wear a sky blue shirt or not. One school of thought is that City got away with it. And the other is that they completely played within the rules of FFP and the, the allegations against them were completely false. As someone who looks into the finances a little bit deeper, how do you see it? Uh, the best lawyers simple as that if you take a look at all of the recent cases where clubs have
1: overturned or been successful in respect of issues to do with the football authorities so we take a look at derby county they were cleared of charges from the efl for their unusual accounting behavior mm. sheffield wednesday they were charged but some of the charges were actually dropped or they some of the charges were overturned and the penalty was pushed back until twenty 2020, twenty twenty one. I've I've got to know a few sports lawyers, and they say it comes down to the quality of of your legal team to put forward a persuasive argument. The Court for Arbitration for Sports, the sports resolutions who deal with all of the domestic issues in the likes of Derby and Sheffield Wednesday and Macclesfield and so on, that they normally consist of a panel of of three legal experts who will listen to the, the evidence in a detached, objective and dispassionate way. And therefore, if you've got a good legal case and, I, and I've looked, I've, I've read all of the judgments on, on a few occasions and I'm not a lawyer. I'm just a teacher. But <laughs> you can see why clubs have won or lost their defences when you read the details of the judgments, And, and you, you can you can see why that conclusion w- was made in respect of Manchester City. UEFA's evidence was hacked emails. Now, they didn't do enough to back that up. And they potentially could have done in in respect of Derby. The the person who valued Pride Park on on behalf of the EFL was comparing Pride Park to Morecambe Stadium and St. Helens Rugby League ground. Well, they're not comparable. Mm. Why not go and compare it to the Amex? That's a brand new stadium. That's the same capacity. Um, And when, when you have people who don't put forward a persuasive case, then the credibility of your argument starts to diminish and that, that's why we've had the rulings that we've had. But in, in terms of what happened at Manchester City, it wasn't a unanimous verdict. It was two against one. And, and if you look at some of the stuff which has been put out by the dissenting member of the panel, it's, it's not particularly complimentary uh, about the club.
0: It's caused a lot of debate about FFP in general and exactly what those rules, whether they're fit for purpose is one thing, but also what they were there to do, what the intention of introducing those rules was and obviously on the face of it it's about protecting clubs from their from overspending and securing their financial future the accusation is that actually those rules are put in place to protect that top tier that uefa top table of big football clubs who very much like it being a little club and they don't want manchester city coming along and pulling up a chair to that table when you look at how the rulings have been made and you look at the financial restrictions that are put on clubs what does it seem to you is the actual the real intention behind those rules
1: It's a bit of a cop-out, this answer. There's an element of everything in there. Initially, the objective of UEFA was to reduce debt in football. The thing is, Manchester City and PSG, they don't have any debt because their owners Mm. just pump in money in the form of shares. So that seemed anomalous. Then it was to stop one club monopolising domestic football by being able to outbid for players. And I think in in that regard, financial fair play has been both successful and a complete failure because on the European stage I think PSG and Manchester City compete with the other elite clubs but they can't blow them out the water as a result of FFP but because there's so much money in UEFA competition it has meant that if you take a look at the domestic leagues in Germany, Italy and France and you know Spain is a little bit more democratic because you've got the duopoly there, many of the leagues in Europe it has now meant that the clubs cannot try to push themselves up to become competitive with the dominant club and we've ended up with Bayern winning the Bundesliga, Juve winning Serie A and PSG winning League One on a rather tedious basis and Mm. and in that respect I think financial fair play has has failed but it has restrained the spending of PSG and Manchester City if you look to see what happened with Sanchez and Maguire Manchester City on both occasions they were outbid in terms of wages by Manchester United
0: when you look back on all the stories that you've investigated or all the finances you've looked through and stuff you've reported on down the years do you have one particular favourite moment where you found a little nugget of information that no one else has spotted maybe and you've gone this is the one this this is this is the fact I've been waiting for
1: well I guess my favorite minute and it was to be fair it was in one of the papers at the time was when Derby County recruited a player's mother to become an academy scout and were paying her £700,000 a year. And part of the reason for that is that academy spending doesn't count towards financial fair play. But also, by having that money go to her, it meant that those players who are on contracts which said that they had to be the highest earner in the club... If the player had come in on a higher wage, they would it wouldn't have cost the club an extra seven hundred thousand pounds. Those players would have been knocking on the manager's door, demanding a wage rise as well. So, so you know that—that that for me was one of the best, along with Sheffield Wednesday being sponsored by a taxi company
0: that didn't own any taxis but was owned by the club owner. Do you think the average fan knows about the murkier side of finances? Two stories there you've highlighted that I've never heard before. But do you think the is there more of that stuff going on than maybe we realise? Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, all, all the really murky stuff I can't get my hands on because that's <laughs> that's taking place in the Cayman Islands and the British Virgin Islands and places of that nature. Some of the transactions, some of the unusual sponsorship activities where you go, well, that that doesn't seem from a business perspective to make any logical sense why for example have Everton recently signed a naming rights option with a Ukrainian metal exchange for a stadium which might not be given permission to, 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 to be built and even it is permission to be built it, it won't be built until you know, 2023 2024 and then you look at the relationship between the owner of that company And the owner of Everton, and he said, "Well, they used to both be shareholders at Arsenal, and one of them sold shares to the other, and it it all, it all, it sort of goes into a bit of sort of, you know, sort of Cluedo-style linking of things together, Um, and 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 it's all perfectly legal, by the way. Yeah, none of this is none of this is illegal, but it it does make you think that that's that's an unusual way to run a business."
0: We've seen some interesting stuff with owners, and I'm not connecting this to the new Everton ownership in any way. Where we've seen clubs like Berry and like Wigan here in the Northwest going out of business, or certainly almost going out of business because of either mismanagement in the case of Berry and in the case of Wigan, I guess, I mean, God knows what's gone on there. It seems to have formed part of some kind of strange gambling syndicate or whatever's happened there. But do you think there needs to be better? tests more restrictions on who can buy and who can sell football clubs
1: in an ideal world yes i do think the efl and the premier league have a really tough job in setting the bar at the right level at present the bar is set at a very low level but who makes the owners and directors test well it's the owners of football clubs so you know if you think about it, ultimately the ultimately the premier league is representative of premier league owners it's not it's not representative of fans the efl is representative of efl club owners mm. um many of whom are presently trying to sell their club so the last thing that they want to do is to bring in a rule set which makes it very difficult for them to sell the club when they want to for as high a price as possible so as a consequence we, we have rules which uh yeah all you have to do is to be able to put together some form of spreadsheet and a, and a photocopy of a bank account with lots of zeros on and not be wearing a tag and and that effectively allows you to do it in terms of what's happened at berry steve dale is a guy that's if you if you look at his his record He's had, you know, dozens of companies which have gone into, uh, have ceased to trade. Uh, there were similar mm. issues with Bolton and, and Ken Anderson, who was previously banned from being a company director for many, many years. They say, well, surely things of this nature shouldn't be allowed. So what is the solution? Well, should they have to go and put down a goodwill deposit when they buy a club? Because Berry was bought for a pound. Charlton were bought for a pound. Uh, we, we've seen Macclesfield go bust. So so should there be some form of control within the industry similar to what we see in the travel industry so if a travel agent goes bust it's it's covered effectively by an industry-wide insurance scheme should the premier league and efl appoint non-executive directors for let's say a minimum period of three years whenever somebody new takes over a club just to monitor the decisions which are being made but things of that nature that they get rejected they get rejected by the by the present ownership so making the the issues of governance and transparency more important in football is to a certain extent turkeys voting for christmas if, if you're an existing <laughs> club owner which is which is why they don't want to do it the latest news about your team The biggest stories from your terraces, the most exciting moments from your week. Forget the clickbaits and listen to real fans bringing you real news every single day from the Premier League. Listen and subscribe now wherever you find your podcasts by searching Football Social Daily.
0: It's been fascinating chatting to you, Kieran. I want to finish off this chat with a bit of myth busting, if that's okay. I've got a few okay, football folks. finance myths. I'm hoping I, I could either bust them or prove them to be true, I guess. That's the kind of point. But the first one is that football agents get obscene amounts of money for doing absolutely nothing.
1: Some do. Some are uh, essential for looking after their clients. If, if you've got a, a young man who's been in a club's academy for many years, he, he might not have a great financial knowledge in terms of his short, medium and long-term interests. And and if you get a good agent, they will look after you and they will they can look after you for many years. Some agents are, are purely in it to make a quick buck. And, and what disturbs me is that if you or I want to be an agent, what do we have to do? We have to send a cheque for £500 to the FA and that's it you are now a registered intermediary you can represent any for anybody in the game there's no references required there's no exams to pass it's not like other professions and and there doesn't appear to be any sort of industry watchdog itself so you know for example i I'm a qualified accountant. If I misbehave, I, I go up before the board. Now, you might say, well, hold on. You know, you think about the, the Law Society and that other lot, they, they don't tend to pick on their own too often, but at least there is some form of regulatory body. That's not the case as far as agents are concerned, that they do seem to be able to have pretty much of a free reign. I've taught agents, I've met many agents and my opinions of them have gone from everywhere from naught out of 10 to 10 out of 10. Some of them are genuinely caring, got a sense of responsibility, of a love for the game and want to protect their, their clients from the clubs. Because clubs aren't nice to football players, you are merely a commodity to a football club and you will be kicked out on your ass if, if for any reason the club doesn't want you.
0: I guess, like with any profession, there's good ones and bad ones.
1: Yes, yes. And uh, I do think as, the, as there is no filter as to who became, become a football agent, you know, I think everybody can get fuck hold of 500 quid. It does mean that you're going to get easy access to the wrong ones. And football is a glamorous industry and glamorous industries attract people whose, whose interests are often for themselves rather than for the greater good.
0: We've unbusted that, whatever the opposite of busting is, we've done that. Uh, next one is Manchester United's owners, we've kind of touched on this already a little bit, are bankrupting the club, robbing it of success, and lining their own pockets.
1: No, they've not bankrupted the club. If you take a look at Manchester United, it still has the biggest wage bill in English football over the course of the fact that since Sir Alex retired, I say they spent £1.2 billion. How well that's been spent is for other people to decide, not me. If you take a look at a season ticket at Old Trafford, Manchester United's match day income in 2019 was effectively the same as it was in 2010. They've not put up season tickets prices for, for many, many years. So, you know, on, on that basis, I think there is an element of social conscience there. That there's plenty of good people who work at Manchester United. They didn't take the furlough scheme. They were absolutely magnificent in terms of what they did for the local population. On the downside, Manchester United have spent £820 million pounds paying interest on loans since the Blazers acquired control. Now, could that £820 million been better spent on the playing squad to, to keep Manchester United ahead of other clubs? I think potentially it could have done. Do they take money out of the club? Well, yes, each year Manchester United pay dividends to shareholders of around about £22 million not a huge amount yeah but that's yeah the equivalent of what the wages for two players it's still significant and they're they're not reds you know you you live in Manchester I spent 35 years opening the bowling for Trafford Cricket Club I grew up in a changing room which was half United fans and half City fans and there's plenty of good people around Manchester United I don't think they're as evil as people make them out to be could they have done more I don't think it's a case of doing more I think they could have done it better
0: Final one Clubs sometimes sign players for their shirt value, i.e. they buy a big name player because it will sell a load of merch in the club shop rather than contribute to maybe success on the pitch.
1: I think there's probably only two or three players in the world for whom that could potentially apply. If, If we're talking Neymar, Ronaldo and Messi, when people transcend sport, that can certainly help from a financial perspective. But in the vast majority of instances, if you're a fan of a club, you're going to buy the shirt anyway. So all all that would have happened if Lionel Messi had come to the Etihad uh, this summer is that fans would have bought a shirt with Messi and eight on the back of it instead of Aguero or instead of Sterling or instead of whoever else. I don't think it, it makes a huge difference. clubs what what it does allow the club to do is that if you recruit a superstar it actually allows you to go to your commercial partners and say you're you're our official noodle partner this year um, we're sending you John Stones for the photo opportunity if however you want Lionel Messi we're prepared to do it But, you know, Lionel needs a little bit of money for this, and we need a little bit of money for this, for the inconvenience. Instead of £1.5 million, it's going to cost you £5 million. So I think it's the commercial impact. It tends to be bigger than the shirt size.
0: There we go. We semi-busted that one. That's good enough for me. Kieran, thanks very much for your time on Football Stories today. It's been a joy to talk to you. You're a busy man. You've got lots going on. You've got the podcast. You've got books out. You're constantly posting stuff on social media. Where's the best place for people to find more from you?
1: I guess I'm probably most active on, on Twitter, at Kieran Maguire. But I have a podcast, along with, with Kevin Day, who, who's an absolute delight to work with. Despite the fact that we, we support different clubs, we, we get on really well. And I've got nothing but admiration for him because he, he's a professional broadcaster. And I'm a teacher, and you can certainly tell the difference. But it's called The Price of Football, and it goes out twice a week. And we, we just try to lift the lid on on the financial stories about the game without being too nerdy. And
0: Kevin's very funny as well it's a fascinating podcast my favorite bits are where kevin's zones out completely from what you're saying (laughs) (laughs) which happens on a regular basis because unfortunately i'm very dull I wouldn't say that it's very complicated a lot of what you talk about but it is a great listen Kieran thanks for your time today and, uh, and good luck with what comes next thank you if you like that check out the Price of Football podcast go get a listen along with the other shows in this series because there's some great interviews with the likes of Steve Ayer Manchester City youth coach Mark Halsey the ex Premier League referee and Gary and Colin Lewin who were physios at Arsenal during the time of Arsene Wenger really interesting insight from them into the impact Arsene Wenger had not just on Arsenal but on football as a whole during their time at the club also make sure you're subscribed to this podcast so you get season 2 as soon as it launches in the new year but thank you very much for listening this is Football Stories Football Stories is a sports social production and part of the Sports Social Podcast Network hosted and produced by Jim Salverson with additional production support and imaging from Ant McGinley Find more from the Sport Social Podcast Network at sport-social.co.uk. Find more great shows or join the team at sport-social.co.uk. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape.
1: Now Judy's the life of the party.
0: Oh, baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon.
1: Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs>